me. <laughs> That's your disclaimer. <laughs> yeah. I don't um, speak Greek or Hebrew. I don't speak Greek or Hebrew either. They're dead languages. <laughs> I'm not a pastor. I'm not even married to a pastor. I did not go to a Christian college. I'm just a 58-year-old housewife. So I'm here to say thank you because I understood what you were saying. And I'm amazed that I could even understand you but I filled my pages with notes, plus in the margin, I have these aha moments. So I don't know if that's encouraging or if that's a criticism to you, but I hope that oh, thank you. It, it is. It's very encouraging. Um, I feel like I'm a child theologically. I do have two questions, but they're so infantile that I'll save them for the end. I just wanted to say thank you for being, it was delightful. It was like the first time I've ever snorkeled and I saw below the surface. That's the analogy. <laughs> I saw something below the surface and it's so exciting. Thank you. One, Dr. Gentry, could you repeat your limerick? <laughs> well, uh, I think it's on my phone here. All right. <laughs> My my memory is weak. You know how that works. And I couldn't I couldn't write that fast. I only got the last words that Somebody rhymed. Somebody said it was on the internet. Uh, let's see. Now on the internet. Yeah. Uh, okay, it's coming up. Oh. While you're looking for that, Doctor Wellam. Yes. You said that the Psalms were post-exilic. I got that, but I don't know why you said that, since right. they're written by David, and he was pre-exile. Right. Well, in the Psalms, obviously, we have 150, right? Um, various authors, right? So they're not all uh, David. Uh, you have Psalm 90 is Moses. Psalm 137, the setting of Psalm 137 is at Babylon. So obviously, uh, you have to distinguish the individual psalms from the collection of the psalms as an entire book. Same way as uh, Isaiah, for instance. Uh, Isaiah would preach, uh, yet the collection of Isaiah as a book is different than simply trying to reconstruct his sermons, right? It's put together as a literary unit, and you read it as a book. The same thing with the Psalter as well. So it's post-exilic in the sense that if you've got Psalm 137 in there, that they're at Babylon, obviously it can't be collected as a collection until after that time. So that, that's why that dating comes. Now, when you read the Psalter, um, and there's been a lot of work done on this, and I think uh, even the instincts of the church for many, many years is to see much more of a unity to that volume. But it is a book. And it, in fact, is structured in terms of five divisions. Now, that structuring of five divisions is, we don't know who exactly structured it that way, but it's, that's, as it's put together as a book, which would be after the exile, that's how the structure comes to us, right? And so then it's important to then read the psalms, not just as individual psalms isolated from the entire book, but there is a storyline in the book itself. So that you have to then see how Psalm 72 is 
in the entire book of Psalms, right? And when you do that, then you really see how it's functioning messianically, how it's a mini biblical theology, how it's taking um, you know, all of what uh, the covenants in terms of uh, the unfolding of those covenants, culminating in David, the anticipation of a new David, then you really see the Christological element of it. But uh, I know Peter teaches on this whole area as well, too. So what do you want to... That was very good. Okay. Um, <laughs> God's plan made a hopeful beginning, but man spoiled his chances by sinning. We trust that the story will end in great glory, but at present the other side's winning. Yeah, I think, uh, I think uh, just to emphasize something that Steve said, um, when I was brought up in the church, the Psalms were treated as standalone thing, units. And, and uh, that's not really right because it, it's, it's like a hymnal. And a hymnal is put together by an editor who puts hymns side by side to help you come to certain conclusions. And so you need to think about the psalm, you need to think about the way the psalms are arranged, you see, to see what conclusions the editor of the book wants you to come to. And so it's, uh, uh, it's, it, and it, it's not really the psalm as, 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 as written by David, that is now inspired. It's the psalm in the in the in the book. The whole book is inspired, and you want to understand how that. Just give me one. Give you one example. Psalm 86 is David. He's actually praying. The, he's actually praying the prayer of Moses in Exodus 33 and 34. Show me your glory, and he and he and he's a and God revealed Himself to Moses as a forgiving God. So David prays for that. And you know what the you know what the next psalm is about? Well, in Psalm 87, God says, "I'm going to take your worst em enemies, Babylon and Egypt, and I'm going to give them birth certificates in Zion," which is why you and I are sitting here today. So God answered David's prayer, but in a way that he never thought. But the editor saw that. You see? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of work that needs to be done on the Psalter, even even what we call the minor prophets. When you think of the book of Psalms, right, you don't have it. You've never had it as individual Psalms. It's always been as a collection. Right? That's, how, that's how it's to be read. In the same way with the uh, minor prophets. The minor prophets don't, aren't free-floating around. Uh, here's Hosea, here's this. They're, they're really one book with different chapters. And, of course, when you start reading them that way, uh, you begin to see that they are providing various themes and truths that are being emphasized over and over again, and especially when they're positioned... Uh, but we would argue is post-Davidic covenant. Now you begin to see very much the forward look that they have. They're looking back to the previous covenants, the failure of those covenants, and then the future, what it holds. And then you begin to see a lot of the anticipation of the coming in of Gentiles, God's work of new creation. I mean, a whole host of things that all the New Testament picks up on. So, um, And then there's even the whole discussion of the ordering of the Old Testament canon, right? Is the Old Testament canon just arbitrarily thrown together? Uh, there's a lot of work that would say, no, it's not arbitrarily thrown together. So there's a lot of good work that's being done here because inspiration pertains to, I mean, certainly Dave is, a, is an inspired 
upright prophet writer, but it's ultimately the final forms of these books. Right? That is that which is God-given, which is scripture, which we then read. So there's a lot that uh, could be developed in those areas, but crucial points that uh, then help the Bible you know, really point forward as it is supposed to do. Doug Shank. Uh, I'm from North Dakota, so I'd like a T-shirt for being the one that came now, where are North Where are North Dakota from? Grand Forks. Very good. Are you doing a lot of drilling up there? Uh, not personally. Not personally, but everyone else is, right? <laughs> they are. North good Dakota is booming. It is. That's right. Uh, question, particularly for Dr. Wellum. Uh, you had alluded to uh, Edmund Clowney's uh, work way back when, and it caught me a little bit of surprise when you – uh, observed that David and the covenant to David gets insufficient attention. Right. Uh, as I've read Dr. Clowney's sermon and the book uh, on whatever it is I'm preaching, it's been some years, my understanding is what he does is, uh, is, is focus on the typology. So if it's a text about the priesthood, then your primary source then for illustrating Christ is, is the priesthood. But if you're talking about the, the, the royal office of the Lord Christ, then he will bring in the background of, of the Davidic covenants. I, I, I'm not yeah. seeing yeah. Yeah. your critique. I just wonder if you could ex yeah, say yeah, that. Yeah, no, no problem. I mean, that's what Goldsworthy was picking up in terms of his, his volume when he put Voss, Clowney together. Now, when you get to Clowney... I don't understand Voss. I tried. Oh, okay, well. <laughs> um, but, you know, they're working out of a similar um, framework and similar... Clowney's dependence upon Voss, Voss's role at Westminster, and so on. Um, when you read Clowney specifically, I mean, that's why when you, when you say that they miss the Davidic theme, you know, you have to be very careful what you say, just the same way when you say um, they're not Christ-centered enough. Well, of course they're Christ-centered, but when it works out in terms of certain theological doctrines, they seem to miss that point. Now, particularly with I would argue with uh, covenant theology as it shows up in the nature of the church, as it shows up in then the implications that has for ordinances and this type of thing. But when you read Clowney at many, many points, I mean, um, uh, his books do pick up those themes, but then are they worked out consistently? So, so Goldsworthy's point is, is that they still operate uh, within a larger covenant of grace construction. They still work with sort of Moses... Christ in terms of administrations of that at that covenant, even though then I think there's inconsistency at many many points, right? So this is where uh, when you read Clowney, I mean I've benefited hugely from Clowney. I would say I'm not sure why he concludes what he does in these other areas, right? Because if he consistently worked this out, so in his view on the church, his doctrine of church book, I used to require that as a standard reading in our ecclesiology courses. And eventually I, I, I switched it. But, you know, here's a Presbyterian view. So at the very, the very first part of his book on biblical theology, I'm saying amen, 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 amen. And then you get to the very end of it as it works itself out in terms of the nature of the church, uh, ordinances. I'm saying, what happened here? Uh, there seems to be a disconnect with some of his good biblical theology that he's doing. So Goldsworthy's point, and that's what I was emphasizing, is that that Voss clowny tradition even though at many, many points they get it right, they're still operating within a certain framework that still, I think, makes them miss certain points that they shouldn't. 
Great. So that's that was the point there. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, my question has to do with the fall, and um, sometimes in reading the the confessions. Uh, the statement seems to not be justified in the text where they say, Satan using the subtlety of the serpent to subdue Eve, then by her seducing Adam, you know, and so forth. That, that, that seducing of Adam doesn't seem to be that present in the text. And I'm wondering, is there something, is there some way in which Adam dropped the ball and sinned before, even in the fact that this conversation takes place between the serpent and Eve. Did Adam, did Adam somehow sin in some way that's implied in the text? Because now there's a serpent talking to Eve, and like, where is he? Do you see that? Yeah, 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 no, no. I mean, let me just say, we'll let Peter pick up something here. I mean, I mean part of, uh, you see the unique um, the unique headship role, I think, of Adam um, in creation and with his wife. Right? So you have in Genesis 2, Adam, and Paul picks this up in 1 Timothy 2, right? Adam is created first. Eve then is the helpmate. And of course, this becomes grounding to a proper complementarian relation between male and female. Now, as it works it out in the fall, I mean, Adam is given the command. Right? Eve then in Genesis 2 comes after, right? So he we would take it as he's supposed to communicate that command to his wife, right? Now, as you work in Genesis 3, I mean, Genesis 3, you do have an entire reversal of the created order. So you have Adam and Eve who are to rule over the serpent and the animals and the created kingdom. Now you have this serpent thing. And, and some will see this as a kind of unclean animal. Beale will pick that up in the temple sanctuary. Well, that's possible. But at least, you know, you have the created thing, the creature that they're supposed to have dominion over, now coming to them, he approaches Eve first. And, and verse 6 is very, very crucial here, right? He is there. He's not out, to, you know, uh, somewhere. He, so he's not seduced in the sense that uh, he's innocent. No, he's held accountable, right? I mean, so later on in the text, the curse then comes to serpent, to Eve, to Adam, right? I mean, Adam is held. Ultimately, death comes into the world because of Adam. Because you did listen to your wife, you didn't do what I commanded you. So he, there's a headship role that he's playing there that is precisely what Paul picks up in Romans 5 and in other places. So that I do think that yeah, you have to be very, very careful how you put this together. What's going on, I think, is a reversal of the entire created order. Adam has usurped his role. Uh, uh, there's now a conflict between all of creation cut off from God with the sexes. There's, there's, there's conflict. And all of that is going to have to be restored. And Adam is presented here as responsible, right? So now, is there a sin before that act? Well, I mean, Romans 5 makes it very clear the one act. I mean, so it seems to tie it back to that act that was then described in Genesis 3. And obviously, there's a number of things going on here. But he is presented, I think, in a unique headship role. He's not seduced. It's his fault. He was silent. And he should have then exercised his role as Adam and as, as the husband. That was very well done. <laughs> John Jeffrey from Scranton. Uh, running with the image-likeness uh, paradigm, 
later on where Christ has shut down the Pharisees, at least temporarily, or the Sadducees, and one of the Pharisees uh, can't keep his mouth shut. And apparently, as Dr. Carson might say, he has a category error in the way he cast the issue and uh, asked the question because he asked it in the singular Christ responds in the plural that there's two commandments, love God, love your neighbor. Would you see the image and likeness Mm. paradigm of worship and rule uh, as driving that, as being linked to that, Uh, the the love God, love your neighbor uh, response to his summation of the law? Oh, I, I'm not sure I'm grasping the question. Well, I mean, because you, uh, your distinction between image and likeness in terms of to God, to the created order. Oh, yeah. Vertical, horizontal? Oh, yes. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, yes, I think you see that. Uh, that's, that's a very good observation. Uh, I don't know that I had maybe even made the connection, but what, what I think you need to see is that, every, is, is, then you can trace that right throughout the Bible, right? So uh, the, 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 covenant, the covenant with creation involves loving God and loving, the cre- loving each other. And, uh, and Noah is supposed to carry this forward, and Abraham is supposed to carry this forward. He sells out his wife twice. The guy's a real beggar. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, then, and then Israel takes on that role, and David takes on that role. So you can follow that right throughout. So that was a good observation. John Jeffrey from Scranton again. And by the way, for those who aren't aware of it, that debate, that was an ongoing debate, uh, at least in the Pharisaical schools, of, of trying to reduce the law to one commandment. That's why I would say it was a category error. Right. If they understood what Christ was getting at, was linking to when he answered it. Um, another one, uh, I have a couple, but maybe we'll do this one first. You spoke of having a relationship with God, and then in the case of the Abrahamic covenant, the promise is being given. Then later the promise is being enshrined when the covenant was cut. Then at a later point, the covenant being reiterated and upheld. Right. Okay, now, that relation, that initial relationship at that point in time when the promises were given, would you characterize the relationship as covenantal? This is prior to the cutting of the covenant. I, I, it, no, I don't think it's formally a covenant at that point. Yeah. I think it's, uh, I don't know if my, uh, I mean, I came up with this analogy, but I think it's like, boy meets girl, they develop a relationship, and then there's an engagement, and then uh, that's, the, uh, that's the, um, the giving of the promise, and then and the, the, the covenant is the wedding ceremony. The other thing that I think we should see is, in the Abrahamic stories, is that God, God bends over backwards, and he does absolutely everything to, to affirm himself to Abram. So don't just put it, don't just stop there. You have the giving of the promise in 15, you have the making of the covenant, and then you have the mighty oath. You know, God actually swears. Uh, so uh, he's, he's, God's working overtime to get this guy, Abraham, to, to trust his word, and Abraham's on a real roller coaster ride.
sometimes he, he exhibits great faith and the other time he exhibits the family trait of uh, strategi strategizing to get your plan to work. The only, like I, I, one of the things I love in the book is the, you, if you compare Genesis 14 with Genesis 18, you see, because in Genesis 14, um, uh, the, the four bad boys from the east come and beat up on the five little kings, and they take off, they, they get away with Lot, right? And so he's got to get his nephew back. So there's Abram, you know. We don't read about him calling on the Lord or anything. He just goes out with his allies and his, he strategizes, right? He surprises them by night and, and beats the tar out of them. So, uh, but then in Genesis 18, Lot's in trouble again. And now Abram's up against Yahweh himself. So what's he going to do? <laughs> He has to actually buy into the way of Yahweh. <laughs> He's actually forced to do it. So uh, instead of coming up with his own strategies, that, that by the way, that's very, very significant because in in chapter 18, you know, uh, Abram is giving them the kind of the Scot send-off by walking halfway with uh, with them, and. Uh, Yahweh says, you know, how can, I, how can I hide this thing? I can't hide what I'm doing because I have a covenant relationship with this guy, see? And he's going to become this great nation. And he says that he will instruct, he will instruct his, 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 uh, his family in the way of Yahweh. That's the first time in the Bible that you have the, the phrase, the way of Yahweh. And... If, uh, this isn't in the book, but I, I, I expounded it later on at the Evangelical Theological Society. In Exodus 33 and 34, Moses says, show me your way. That's what he says at the beginning. Show me your way. And then God reveals his way, his, his, his name and his way. His glory consists of his name and his way. And uh, his name... His name involves, who he is, involves chesed and emeth, faithfulness and loyal love. And how he deals with people is in, in covenant relationships. You see, God is covenantal in who he is, and he's covenantal in how he deals with us. So, Yahweh is trying to show Abram what this, is, what this looks like, and Abram has to buy into it to get his nephew out of trouble. Um, in one of the footnotes you mentioned in ancient Near Eastern culture, if something isn't named, yes. it doesn't exist really, or something like that. If it's not but named, I, it, if it hasn't been named, it doesn't seem to, it's, it's, it's lacking something. What, what I said is that uh, there are 1,200 footnotes, so I'm amazed that you read <laughs> some of them. <laughs> uh, the, in Hebrew, naming, naming some, like an animal... Uh, like Adam was doing, involves two things. It involves gaining insight into the character or nature of the thing that you're naming and gaining some kind of mastery over it. And so really, all uh, Solomon was continuing that work by naming things, and what we're doing in the universities is continuing the work of Adam. By We, we name things and bring the universe under our control.
Is that, is that a clarification? It, it, it's very helpful. And coming back to my question about some implied sin in Adam before the serpent Eve conversation goes the way it does, he doesn't name her Eve until after the fall. No, he names her. Uh, he, there are two things. Uh, before the fall, he names her uh, woman. And that's very significant uh, because uh, Isha is the feminine form of Ish. So uh, he names her, so that shows that he's the leader, but he gives her the same name that he has, so that shows that they're ontologically equal. So that right there is your complementarian view, right there before the fall. The man is the leader, but you're both equal as beings before God. Then after, after the fall, he called her Eve, Chawa, which comes from the verb Chaya, to live. And the text blows me away because it says, because she was the mother of all the living. Notice the past tense there. He's not saying, uh, what that text means is, Adam wasn't just thinking that she would be the progenitor of all, of everyone because she's the first woman because that would have required the future tense or the present tense but she was the mother of all the living I think that's a direct response to the promised seed uh, in, in uh, so I think that's that naming actually is Adam expressing his faith so I, I know that Adam was a believer because of that verse Does that answer your question? <laughs> I think so. I, I think I was wondering whether in naming her woman, he said what she was, but then he had failed to say who she was before the fall, that, oh. that, that there's something something lacking in his, that, that, that because he didn't name her before the fall, maybe he... he there's some implied le- lack of leadership in, in leading her, in knowing her, in naming her before the fall. Well, I, I can see where you're going. I would just say that's too speculative. Okay. Um, one of the things that I do is uh, I try to make very sure that I don't speculate and go beyond the text. Paul says in the New Testament that he warns the, his readers not to go beyond what is written. I think that's very, very important because a lot of a lot of discussions in Christian churches are speculative. They're very speculative. They go beyond, you know. Augustine, uh, some student came to Augustine and asked him what God was doing before the creation of the world, and he told him he was creating hell for the curious. So, um, let let let's be part of the pro. Uh, I'm the kind of I'm the Martin Luther in this uh, team. I'm just the bull in the china shop. So <laughs> it's very important. He's not a typical Canadian. Yes. <laughs> Let me just put it this way: as a young man of 21, I um, I came to Dallas Theological Seminary, and I was I was full of questions: Who am I? 
where did I come from? Where am I going? What am I doing here? Da 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 da. And I treated the book like a textbook that had to answer all my questions. And then I sat in those first lectures under S. Lewis Johnson, and he compared he compared science and theology, and he said uh, in science. Uh, Science is based on observation. So actually, everything you do, you know the scientific method, observation, you develop hypotheses, and then you, de you, de you, de you develop um, experiments that will test those hypotheses universally. Uh, everything that people do in science is based on the five senses. Every machine that a scientist has is an extension of one of the five senses. And so scientists deal with what they perceive. They deal with percepts. But he said, uh, theology is based on revelation. It's personal. Just like you and me, Daniel, we're persons. And there's no way you're going to know what's going on in my head unless I decide to tell you, and vice versa. And so uh, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. There's no way you're going to know what's going on in God's head unless he decides to break the ice and tell, it, and tell us. And so, because it's based on revelation, we're not dealing with percepts, we're dealing with audits, things that you hear. That made such a tremendous difference because for the rest of my life I decided not to spend my life bringing my questions to the Bible, but trying to hear what God is saying. The first thing I discovered, Daniel, is that Every Hebrew repeats himself at least twice. So it's amazing that we never get the message when it's repeated so many times. I'd like we got one, one more question, but uh, I would just add to that as well, context here. Uh, the very naming of his wife in Genesis 2 is set in the context that there's, there's no suitable animal or creation for him and then the, the whole creation of Eve, right? So the context is what's going on there. So it's not a, you know, a sin or anything else, but the very naming of her is set in the context of there is no suitable helper here. This one is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. There's equality yet difference. And I think that's the main emphasis there. Yeah. Uh, this one's a little more straightforward. Uh, primarily to you, Doctor. Uh, you made the comment uh, within this the setting. I wrote down the exact words. I don't have them with me. That you understand the this covenantal understanding of the, the Bible's worldview to be the, the pressing problem of the church today. Well, you want me to elaborate on that? Uh, actually, in a specific way, if you don't mind, sir. Yes. Um, I have read uh, that both Calvin and Luther and Melanchthon and uh, Bootser all understood their assessment would have been the great problem in the church is the inability to differentiate between law and gospel. Mm -hmm. So I just wonder if you could kind of talk about both of those things at the same time. Is, is that clear enough? I, how do you – is this two different ways of saying the same thing? Is one subsume the other? I'm not tracking that. Uh, yes, well, uh, I probably Steve can answer that because I'm uh, – generally ignorant of what's happening in, in, in the church in some ways. But, um, you know, the problem... Okay, go on. Well, the problem is that Christians don't understand the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So, for example, uh, Seventh-day Adventists 
you know, want to put us under certain aspects of the Old Covenant because they fail to understand the proper relationship. And sometimes Presby- and Presbyterians are doing the same thing. But go ahead, you answer. Well, I mean, yeah, probably a lot of things to be said. I mean, I mean, ultimately, what's our problem is not just um, covenants or anything else. I mean, ultimately, we don't know God rightly and, and know his word. Uh, and then what we're saying is that covenants are part of knowing that word, right? So the greatest problem facing the church is we don't know God and we put his word into practice and we have to be those who are creatures, uh, redeemed creatures who live under the scripture and put every uh, the whole counsel of God to work, right? So that's what we need, right? And then covenants are helpful in doing that. Now, law gospel, um, I mean, in terms of the entire storyline of the Bible, I mean, law gospel is crucial. It all depends on how one gets at law gospel, I guess. So that uh, the traditional way, the Lutheran way, is that you have demand law. It's not necessarily tied to particular covenant. I mean, it's almost a theological construction put on the Bible. So that you have law in terms of God's demand of all creatures, gospel in terms of God's provision. Now, is that true? Well, it is true in the the broadest sense of it. We're image bearers. God makes a demand upon us of an absolute demand. Uh, we don't meet that demand, he must provide gospel. He must take initiative, grace. Now, how is law gospel now worked out through the covenants and through the canon? That's a different issue, right? So I would say that, uh, um, uh, you know, God makes demand from the very beginning. He also provides, Genesis 3.15. So there's law gospel there. Uh, It runs through the covenants in terms of conditionality and unconditionality. But I would not just divide up certain things as gospel, New Testament, Old Testament law. I would argue, I think Peter would agree too, that uh, you know the Old Covenant, I would say, is a gracious covenant. Uh, but it also makes demands, and, and all these covenants make demands. Uh, it goes all the way back to creation, yet you see how God's provision is met. So law gospel has to be unpacked across the canon. Law gospel is true, right? God makes demands, he provides. And uh, that is a true statement, but it has to be worked out now textually, biblically, to draw a proper conclusion. So I'm not, you know, I'm not in agreement with how Luther does it, in the broad sense, in terms of uh, appealing to this, uh, other than the, the large categories of God is our creator, we are his creatures, he makes absolute demand, it's only by his provision in Christ that there's gospel.